Film spotting is presented by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. Now offering free domain registration with annual plan subscriptions. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to Squarespace.com and use offer code FILM5. That's F-I-L-M, the number 5. Hey, SVU listeners, this is Matt Singer with just a brief word of explanation of what you're about to hear, which is not your ordinary SVU episode. It's kind of a combination of film spotting and film spotting SVU. Adam and Josh are taking the week off from film spotting to get ready for the big 400th episode blowout, and they asked Allison and I to fill in for them for the week, so we decided to kind of combine the two shows. The structure is film spotting. The content is pretty much SVU. There's a big review at the top, but that's a streaming title. There's a top five at the end, but those are all streaming titles. And in between, you've got your listener's choice review of Drugstore Cowboy. So enjoy this hybrid film spotting, film spotting SVU episode, and we will be back in two weeks with your regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for listening. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From New York City, this is Film Spotting. Filling in for Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson this week, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. In some hallways where love's never been, on a bed where the moon has been sweating, that's Leonard Cohen offering some fine suggestions where to listen to this week's episode of Film Spotting and writing the song that would inspire the title of this week's main review, Sarah Polly's new marital drama, Take This Waltz. With you cheating on your regular film spotting host with us as we talk about Michelle Williams contemplating cheating on Seth Rogen in Take This Waltz, it only seemed appropriate to count down our top five infidelity movies currently available for instant online viewing. Plus, in lieu of Massacre Theater, we'll also bring you a second review, one chosen by the listeners of our podcast, Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. That film is Gus Van Sant's classic 1989 drugstore cowboy. But first, Sarah Polly's first film as a director was called Away From Her. Her second could have been called Away From Him, but instead it's called Take This Waltz. Hi. Hi. I think I'm sitting here. I'm sorry. No, I don't know you from somewhere else. Not that I know of. You look really familiar, though. Yeah. Hi. We're making two stops. 62 McLaughlin Crescent. Really? And, yeah, why? Where do you live? Uh, Pretty close, actually. Oh. I'll walk from your place. I'm married. Oh, that's too bad. I missed you. Missed you? (laughs) (laughs) What? Just glad you're here. Yeah? You're good news, you know that. Take This Waltz stars Michelle Williams as Margot, a Canadian travel brochure writer who begins the film happily married to cookbook writer Lou, played by Seth Rogen. It's like the Dawson's Creek Freaks and Geeks crossover sequel you always wanted. Margot and Lou's marriage is full of love and warmth. And the word that comes to mind watching them cook and eat and snuggle and make weird and sometimes kind of violent baby talk together is comfortable. But maybe it's a bit too comfortable. There's plenty of closeness, but not a lot of intimacy, if you catch my drift. Something is missing, and maybe that's why Margot becomes so interested in Daniel, the rickshaw driver who lives across the street. Allison, while film spotting listeners may recognize Sarah Polly as an actress, her future looks to be behind the camera. Her directorial debut, Away From Her, was nominated for two Academy Awards, including one for Polly herself for Best Adapted Screenplay. 
and her second feature, which is Take This Waltz, played the Toronto, Vancouver, Istanbul, Hong Kong, Seattle, and Tribeca Film Festivals. So after Away From Her and Take This Waltz, are you more looking forward to her next film as a director or her next film as an actress? Interesting question. I, I think she has a lot of talent as a director, mm-hmm. and I think that you see that here, though I don't think that this film is quite as successful as her first as a director. Interesting. Uh, it does feature some great performances and also just a very unique and I think discernibly feminine perspective in the way she uh, focuses the story and in the way she directs these actors. I think this film has an interesting visual sense, though like a lot of actors who have gone behind the camera, her strongest suit seems to be in directing performances. And there are three very good ones in this. Michelle Williams certainly is great as someone who's very conflicted about what she's feeling, but also can't bring herself to pull away from this potentially destructive new relationship in her life. And Seth Rogen is also very good as uh, uh, the nicest guy, basically someone who just can't, there's no fault in him, which is part of the reason that the story goes the way it does that, you know, there's no excuse really for her to, to find fault in their relationship. She, the choice is entirely hers. Right. Um, I'm curious as to what you think of, how her relationship develops with Daniel, played by Luke Kirby, because they have what's essentially an affair of words without ever actually consummating anything for uh, the majority of the film. She is cheating on her husband, but she's not really cheating on her husband. Right. Well, that's one of the most interesting things about that relationship is that she clearly loves her husband, but she doesn't want to hurt him because he's such a nice guy as you said even though she doesn't really like this connection has fallen apart but she knows that he's such a great guy that she would feel really bad she tries to walk a line where she can at least tell herself that she's not cheating on her husband even though really you could argue i mean uh, and i'm sure my wife would if she watched this movie <laughs> that she's cheating on him really almost from the very beginning you know because she's doing all these little things to try to you know, she'll wake up super early because she knows he leaves for work really early in the morning. And he's a rickshaw driver, which <laughs> I, maybe one of the things I like least about the movie, actually, is, is the depiction of his character as this incredibly earthy, artistic rickshaw driver who somehow manages to afford this great house in Toronto and luxurious vacations and all these sorts of things while being a rickshaw driver. So I guess it's – I mean, I, I, I should admit I'm not – that familiar with the economics of the rickshaw industry. Perhaps it's far more lucrative than I realize. I actually do disagree, though, that it's not as good as Away From Her. I actually probably would prefer this film to Away From Her. And one of the things I did like about it was the visual aspect of the film. You said she's a a good director of actors, but perhaps maybe isn't the strongest visual director. And she's certainly not a visual director in the sense that Quentin Tarantino is a visual director. There's not a lot of flashy camel work, although there is one scene where there's a a very dynamic uh, montage that involves a very lengthy, long take uh, that we probably shouldn't explain what it's about. But that's sort of a very intense flourish with a camera. But what I think she's always very good with throughout the movie are the sort of more subtle aspects of visual directing, which are like framing, composition, lighting, color. 
there's a great image that's originally seen in one of as, as a fantasy of a couple kissing at a lighthouse, and when it's a fantasy, it's beautiful magic hour light. And then later in the film, that fantasy essentially becomes reality. And at that point, it's almost the exact same shot. It's the, certainly the same location, but it's now after magic hour, and it just. It says everything we need to know about where that relationship is at that point and how reality compares with fantasy. And there's lots of touches like that. So I kind of disagree that she's not maybe the best visual director. I thought this was an impressive film as a, a visual piece. Yeah, and I don't mean to say that I, I, I that she neglects the visuals. I just think that this film has this intimacy of performance that, uh, in terms of the performances that I don't think you see often – from someone who hasn't come from acting, uh, who doesn't have that sense of like reverence mm-hmm. for performance. And, uh, I think that, you know, particularly in the case of Williams, there are two scenes set at a ride at an amusement park that really are all about just the expressions on the actors' faces. And I, you know, they are so eloquent in what is being said. Uh, in a way that's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. But, but again, that's a great scene where she finds a way to visually say everything without any dialogue. Right. I mean, the, the even the ride is itself a perfect metaphor for the way that these characters are kind of jostled and thrown together and almost not in control of their own lives. And uh, there was actually quite a few images like that. I mean, he's a rickshaw driver, which is ridiculous, <laughs> but does pre- present certain opportunities for characters being pulled in the rickshaw and, and not being in control, or perhaps he is in control there's also a scene early in the film where they're flying together. And then right after that, there's a scene where they're on a monorail together. And there's a great shot where we can see the track laid out in front of them, but they're sort of facing away from it. So it's almost as if they don't see where they're headed and, again, have no control. I love that touch. Yeah, I think that actually the visuals are a little – I liked them more, those touches that you described, than a lot of the dialogue, which can mm. tend a bit towards you, – you know, you mentioned there's a lot of quirk on display here. Yes. But it also does tend toward these moments that seem I don't know if on the nose, maybe just overweighted with symbolism. For instance, the the moment in which she says she's afraid of being afraid of missing her flight. Not actually missing her flight, which she realizes is not that terrible if you miss your connection, but that she's afraid of the worry that she has. And then later when she's talking about her husband – and his his cookbook career, you know, she says, like, he's a great cook if you like chicken. And there are moments like that where you're like, I understand what you're going for, but that it seems overweighted, you know? And yes. that, like, just the, the symbolism is just too heavily there. Yes. And I, you know, and I think that particularly the airport moment, which comes so early in her her meeting this guy, I just had trouble buying it as something anyone would say. Right. And, you know, I think that this film is a little heightened. The I, You know, before we were, um, before we started recording, I think you described it as looking a little bit like it's set in an anthropology catalog. Yes. And you do have that sense. It is set in this kind of Their uh, lives bubble. are so art-directed. Yes. But uh, I think even in that case, the way, there were times where the dialogue jarred me. Uh, a bit. And yes. I, I wish that the characters had kind of not said what they just said. Yeah, when when she lets those images sort of speak for themselves, like that amusement park ride, like the scene on that uh, monorail, like the scenes with the lighthouse, perfect, just absolutely perfect. But then there are times where the characters do kind of talk in these ways that really lay it all out and in really obvious and sometimes kind of cringy kind of ways. I had one that I wrote down here where – 
because they are, their marriage is, you know, on the rocks. And Michelle Williams' character is kind of angry at Seth Rogen's character for always cooking chicken. And he's cooking, and she tries to, you know, nuzzle him or be affectionate, and he rejects her. And she gets upset, and she says, it takes all my courage, and you're teaching me to be completely and utterly without bravery. And that just, I mean, I don't know anyone who talks like that. Maybe it's a Canadian, maybe Canadians do. I don't know. But <laughs> I, 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 that doesn't sound like actual conversation. There are other scenes that I think are, are better written and have better dialogue. I mean, some of the interactions between Seth Rogen and Michelle Williams, they have a, a nice kind of ring of real, silly, weird, right, marital kind of pri- banter. Like the private talk that you've yeah. developed, the language you've developed yeah. between. And they're supposed to have been married for five years, so... There's that sense of ease and intimacy makes a lot of sense. Yes. Before we wrap things up, we should talk a little more about Seth Rogen because this is a very different kind of role for him, actually. You know, it's not overly comedic. He has a couple of kind of funny lines. You can kind of see the moments where he was allowed to improvise. Do you think he has a future doing this sort of more dramatic role? We both agreed he was good. Yes. I I think that it's interesting to think that this is one of the first films I've seen him in in which he plays the in some ways like the other guy the non not the romantic lead because you know he's been an unlikely romantic lead That's for true. most of his career That's a good so point. and, and it's, this is the kind of role that you'd kind of expect him like having you know when first introduced to him as an actor to end up in as the nice guy who's maybe not the like he's not the sexy one he's not the one that has like the the spark of chemistry mm-hmm. but i think that he you know and the film I, I, one of the things that the film does so well is to put all of the choice on her and that he is great at being such a good guy, but also making you understand why she's feeling so antsy. Yes. That she feels hemmed in and that she keeps, you know, pushing him away and then coming back and being very needy because she feels guilty. Well, he is the guy who makes chicken. The You know, he's the bland guy. Yes, he's he is. incredibly nice. He's a sweetheart. He would never hurt her. He loves her. But. He is kind of boring. He is. And they also, they're, in the scenes with them, as much as uh, they're great, they have that sense of like people who've known each other for a long time. You also do feel a little uncomfortable because they have such a lack of romantic chemistry. Yeah. They almost have a sibling-like relationship at times Mm. that it makes you understand what is missing, which is any of that spark. They love each other without seeming like they're in love anymore. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting role for him. There's sort of been a kind of a growing sense of maybe getting a little sick of his shtick. And the whole movie is about Michelle Williams kind of being sick of his (laughs) shtick. So I thought that was an interesting, perhaps meta element to the role as well. And again, I thought he was really great. I thought it was the best thing I've seen him in in a very long time. And uh, I, I think he does a great job. As you said, all three performers, all three lead actors are great. And I like the way the film sort of underplays what can ultimately be a very kind of melodramatic story in some ways that surprised me. I don't think you ever answered my original question, though. Which was? Sarah Polly, the actress, or Sarah Polly, the director? Who you, who you got? You know, Sarah Polly has been an actress whose work I've liked a lot. Yes. But she's also been in her fair share of, like, miserable stuff, <laughs> like any, you know, working actor. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's really, that's difficult to say because it, it entirely depends on whether there's someone who can give her a good role. So you want both. That's what you're saying. You I want... do. Yes. I'm refusing to answer or I answer both ways. 
I know. It's Fine. terrible. Well, Take This Waltz is available now on Video On Demand, and you can also rent it on iTunes or Amazon Instant Video. It will be opening in Chicago on July 6th. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email your thoughts to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 206 203 Two four six three. Up next, Matt fakes a seizure while I sneak behind the counter and steal as much morphine as I can carry. Our listeners' choice review of Drugstore Cowboy is next. Stay with us. Now in Vienna, there's ten pretty women. There's a shoulder where death comes to cry. There's a lobby with nine hundred windows. There's a tree where the dogs go to die There's a piece that was torn from the morning And it hangs in the gallery of frost I, 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 I Take this waltz, take this waltz Take this waltz with a clamp on its jaws Film Spotting is presented by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. And Squarespace has recently reduced their prices. They've got great incentives during the month of May, making it one of the best times ever to sign up for a new account. It's been great to have Squarespace on board as a sponsor of Film Spotting, Josh, especially as we've had so many listeners tell us that they use Squarespace and really enjoy the product. Right now, they're giving out free domains to all annual plan customers so that you never have to pay for a domain or worry about hosting it. It's all conveniently integrated when you sign up and requires zero configuration. Even if you decide to cancel the service, that domain is yours to keep. They've simplified their subscription plans and they've got reduced pricing. Now the standard plan starts as low as $8 a month. They've got hundreds of design templates to choose from iPhone, iPad, and Android apps so you can update your blog or site on the go. They've also got online resources and a special support team to give you personal help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can use Squarespace for all your website needs, build it, host it, and update it anytime. For a free trial, go to squarespace.com. You can sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code FILM5 and you'll get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. And don't forget about free domain registration with annual plan subscriptions. That's squarespace.com and use offer code FILM5. On our bed where the moon has been sweating In a cry filled with footsteps and sand Take this waltz, take this waltz, take its broken waste in your hand. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer sitting in for Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson this week. And we're going to give you a little taste of our own podcast here, Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, also known as Film Spotting SVU. Yes, and we should stress that we actually invented that SVU acronym and that no other podcast or television show has ever used it before us. 
<laughs> we just want to make that on the record. I know there was some talk at some point about doing film spotting and then film spotting Miami, but we didn't really want to relocate. <laughs> so I thought SVU, which stands for Streaming Video Unit, it just made a little bit more sense. If you haven't listened to the SVU podcast, it's a bi-weekly podcast devoted completely to the world of online and streaming movies. Each episode has a main review that's voted on by listeners. Two weeks ago, the listeners chose Drugstore Cowboy over The Blue Angel and Dragon Slayer. And we also give you a whole bunch of recommended movies that are available on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and Fandor and iTunes and VOD. Some of those are connected to the main review in some way, and some are new to streaming, and some are expiring on streaming. To find out more about the show, go to filmspottingsvu.com. And as you mentioned, Matt, Drugstore Cowboy was the winner of the listener's choice uh, in our last episode, and it's currently streaming on Netflix. Now, the film came out in 1989 and was Gus Van Sant's second feature after Malanoche and his breakout. It's a look at the lives of dedicated drug users in the early 70s. It's actually based on an autobiographical novel by James Fogel, which was unpublished at the time, and the author was actually in jail when the film came out. And Spoiler I, alert. And I think is in jail again. So, uh, you know, he knows what he's talking about when mm. it comes to the subject matter here. It stars Matt Dillon as Bob Hughes, the leader of a gang of junkies that also includes his wife, Diane, played by Kelly Lynch, as well as James LeGros and a very young Heather Graham. And the film starts, at least, in Vansant's hometown of Portland, Oregon in 1971, where we're introduced to Bob, his sort of surrogate family, and their lifestyle of choice, which involves stealing whatever drugs they can from pharmacies. They're not fussy about what they use. They're fussier about always keeping supplied so they can maintain their high because, as Bob puts it, when high, you could do no wrong, and as long as it lasted, life was beautiful. Obviously, things do go wrong, and Bob decides he wants to clean up, though the gang doesn't all follow him down this path. Now, Matt, there are a lot of films that detail the horror of drug use out there. This isn't really one of them, though it doesn't make the lifestyle look rosy either. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on its portrayal of being a junkie. The thing that I thought was most interesting about the portrayal of drug use in Drugstore Cowboy is kind of actually something that's revealed at the end of the movie, which is when Matt Dillon's character is kind of explaining why anyone not just him, but anyone is into drugs, which is that life essentially sucks as he sees it, and it's unpredictable. And we can never know from one minute to the next how any of us are going to feel. We could be happy now, and the next minute we could get some devastating news or vice versa. But a drug user knows exactly how they're going to feel anytime they look at the label on whatever they're about to use. They can control the emotional roller coaster of life. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective on drug use that only a, a drug user could, could have given us. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Yeah, a few times. But were they? What felonies were you convicted of? What do you want? You want my life story? Wait. I'm a junkie. I like drugs. I... I like the whole lifestyle, but it just didn't pay off. You know, you don't see my kind of people. Because my kind of people, they don't, they don't come down here and beg dope. They go out and get it. And if they miss, they go to jail. And they kick alone with nothing and some, and some holding tank. I'm sorry, Bob. I don't mean to hassle you. 
Oh, this is required. I'm sorry if you think it's unnecessary. So that insight is, I think, maybe the most interesting part of the the world of uh, drug use in the film. The other thing I think that's interesting about the film is kind of how funny their their misadventures are at times, but also how disturbing they are at times. And I think it speaks to Dylan's character's worldview, that unpredictableness. Sometimes it's hilarious, and sometimes it's incredibly tragic, and you just see the full scope of that. I thought that the film actually does a really interesting job of coming around to the fact that it's it's good to have variation in how you feel and that it's good to feel pain at a certain point when uh you know the main character is getting attacked for something he really like doesn't deserve other it's just kind of his past rolling back around to catch up with him he says there's nothing more life affirming than getting the word that i won't say out for, on the radio kicked out of you and i thought that that was a really interesting thing to hear from someone and you believe it in that moment because he's also you know he's went through so much of his life basically numbing himself and mm-hmm. creating this bubble in which your whole life revolves around when you're going to get your next fix. And it's been this very kind of pleasant bubble. Like, as you said, there's, sometimes it's like funny. It's There's this real sense of community to it. They uh, they go on the road for a while and they, they have this great plan. They go through, actually, they have very extensive plans for regular drug users. They, they've really thought things, things through a lot. To a surprising degree at times. Yes, yeah. I agree. But uh, that, you know, that actually... It's better to to feel the bad in life as well, mm. you know, that in the end, that's what he, he chooses. And, uh, you know, that you have um, you have William S. Burroughs in this role towards the end as this defrocked junkie priest who is this voice of wisdom in, uh, you know, an experience, of course, like who would be better to offer experience than William S. Burroughs? I predict in the near future, right wingers will use drug hysteria as a pretext to set up an international police apparatus. An old man, I may not live to see a final solution of the drug problem. You know what, Tom? You might have missed your calling. You should have been a philosopher. Well, Bob, in another life, perhaps. <clears throat> in another life. That he, you know, he says at a certain point that narcotics have been systematically scapegoated and demonized. But I do feel like the film doesn't necessarily buy that. Like in that it does that the, the drugs are blamed for a lot of ills, but that it doesn't think that drugs are are a, a viable choice. You know, it doesn't say that it's okay to kind of choose this bubble. No, that character, I don't think his word should necessarily be trusted. And I think it's interesting the way you put that, the, the way that he's come to accept that it's okay to feel bad, that that's essentially what his ultimate revelation is, is that it's okay to sometimes maybe not get the crap kicked out of you, but to just feel some sort of pain. And that as a drug user, what you're constantly doing is constantly avoiding pain. Cause that's when you're addicted to heroin, like these guys are, that's what it really is. It's like maintaining, not being violently ill that's sort of what it becomes at a certain point so that's an that's an interesting point what's also kind of fascinating to me watching this movie is the depiction of i don't know if we want to call it god or fate or the the invisible hand of the universe (laughs) i don't know how you want to describe it but something about that is so key to everything that happens in this movie there's one of the funniest scenes 
And also one of the most disturbing is one of his angry tirades, one of Bob's angry tirades about a hat on a bed, <laughs> a hex. He's, ba- he's very worried about hexes. The worst hex you can say is to throw a hat on a bed. All right, well, now that we're on the subject, are there any other sacred things we're not supposed to mention that are going to affect our future? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there are. And we might as well discuss them right now, being as we're shut down for the next 30 days. Hats. Okay, hats. If I ever see a hat on a bed in this house, man, like, you'll never see me again. I'm gone. That makes two of us. Why a hat? Because that's just the way it is, sweetie. And it's so absurd and ridiculous. But then we see that actually all the worst things imaginable happen after the hat goes on the bed, which in some bizarre, insane way validates his paranoid, druggy worldview. What do you think the movie is trying to say about God or fate or destiny or luck with all of that? Right. Well, I mean, it makes it clear, you know, it's funny when uh, the character uh, played by Heather Graham brings up dogs, has no idea that like they've, that uh, Bob has created this rule based on this thing that happened to him Mm -hmm. that she would have no, she would never know, you know? So he's created all of these rules by which the world works that he has never, he's neglected to inform most other people. Classic druggy logic. (laughs) Exactly. There's like, obviously a hat on a bed. Disaster equals disaster. Right. But I do think it speaks to how little actual sense of control he thinks he has, you know, that it's all of their success or failure is all based on the whims of of fate and this behavior that really has little bearing on what happens. But that it also his conviction in in these ideas also leads him to get clean. He makes like a basically a deal with this higher power and that's the reason that he chooses to get clean and that that he sincerely believes in these things is the reason that he's able to make that change you know that he feels like it's something that he owes the universe after 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 that deal that he makes right. well so, he calls it god i mean he crosses yeah. himself at one point he says he made a request to god so for him it's god but I don't know that we always think of God as being the man in the hat on the on the bed. So it's <laughs> right. perhaps a larger theory as well. Yeah. What did you think of the look of the film? It's got a, uh, some of the dreaminess, especially in the beginning, the opening scene of uh, that that became kind of a signature Gus Van Sant thing, particularly later in his career. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. And I loved also the way that it seems like home movie-ish footage kind of represents the if you want to call it dreams or also the sort of slightly druggy view of the characters, the point of view. And there's some really interesting, weird hallucinations where uh, we see, you know, Matt Dillon's head and strange objects floating all around it. I love that sort of, yes, very Gus Van Zanty kind of ethereal, dreamy imagery. And overall, I think it's a, they, the movie really does a nice job of nailing a, the period too. It feels very early 1970s. Right. And, the, you know, they really do seem like they are, like, in this, the dream is over, kind of, they're, like, living out the tail end and, the like, the worst death end. of the hippies. Exactly. And yeah. that, you know, he keeps talking about the TV, these TV babies, these TV generation that's coming up, that really, they're different, right? Mm. But that he really seems like he he feels that the scene is sliding away from him mm-hmm. and that he's no longer it's no longer the place for him and maybe that's part of the reason that he ends up making the change yeah one of the things that is interesting about watching this movie today in 2012 on streaming that you wouldn't have gotten in 1989 when it premiered is as you said it's based on a, a novel that wasn't published by a guy who 
obviously was writing about his own life and his own struggles with addiction. And immediately after the movie is over, you can go on Wikipedia or IMDb and read about this this guy who is still struggling with this, you know, who was still holding up drugstores as recently as last year. And while the movie itself has a somewhat hopeful ending, not exactly a upbeat or positive one, it has a sort of open-ended note of perhaps things might work out perhaps there's a future for this character maybe he's trying which is in and of itself is a pretty big step as we've said but then you just read on the web that the guy who wrote it who based it on his own life never escaped this constant cycle of drugs and and theft and it just puts this whole extra melancholy dimension that I think only makes the movie kind of more sad and more beautiful in a way, in that it came from a time when maybe he had some sort of hope of getting out, that he perhaps was sincere about wanting to clean up, and maybe he still is, but it's just too hard. That kind of makes the movie extra devastating. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, melancholy is such a good phrase for it. Even in the beginning, when things are going as well as really they ever go for Bob and his his friends. It's so, it seems so kind of run down and so just a little tired, a little a little sad. There's a sense of exhaustion to it, even then. That feeling that bad things will happen. The knowledge that bad things will eventually happen. Right. But treated with, like you said, with, with this weird, dark sense of humor that makes it a very watchable film. It's not a movie like, I say, Requiem for a Dream, which is a beautiful movie and a powerful movie, but so oppressive. Yeah. You just don't ever want to watch it again. I could see watching this movie all the time. Definitely. And even the moment, the kind of bad thing that happens, which I don't want to spoil, but like right. there's a sense of humor about it just because it goes so hilariously bad. Just the the um, series of things that come together to lead them in the worst possible scenario, basically. It's uh, it's amusing and and tragic at the same time. Absolutely. Drugstore Cowboy is now available on Netflix. Watch instantly. If you've seen it and want to share your thoughts, email us at feedback at filmspottingsvu.com. Before we move on to our top five, we're going to give you the opportunity to vote on the movie we'll review on the next episode of Film Spotting SVU. Allison and I have picked out the three options we're interested in discussing, all of which are available for streaming. And we want you to pick the one we'll review on the show. Option number one is... The Cable Guy from 1996, directed by Ben Stiller and produced by Judd Apatow. The film was infamous at the time of its release, uh, mostly because of the record-breaking paycheck at the time for its star Jim Carrey. I think he got, what was it, like $20 million, an unheard of amount for an actor (laughs) at that point. And that immediately put all these huge expectations on the film. And it ended up being a much weirder and darker movie than all of Carrey's previous more wacky comedies, and I think the very confused audience dismissed it almost immediately, and I think a lot of critics relished the opportunity to lay into a guy who was making an absurd amount of money. But the years since have, I think, been a little kind to the cable guy. The guys who made it, Ben Stiller and Judd Apatow, both have kind of risen in critical stature since then. So I think there's been more interest in what they were trying to do, uh, succeed or fail in this case. So it seems like a good time to reconsider the movie. That's The Cable Guy, and it will be available on Netflix. Watch instantly starting on June 1st. Okay, our second pick is Ganja and Hess, which is currently available on Fandor. This is a 1973 horror film directed by Bill Gunn, who's a very unique independent filmmaking voice and it's about an archaeologist played by Dwayne Jones who's also the star of Night of the Living Dead 
who becomes a vampire after being stabbed with a cursed dagger. I hate when that happens. Uh, you always have to avoid those Ugh. cursed daggers. Dangerous. And, you know, it was originally meant to be a kind of exploitation. It was meant to be like Blackula. It, and Gunn went in this very different direction and tried for something much more ambitious. And it was not at the time, it was a little bewildering to a lot of critics and audiences, but has since really grown in reputation as well. And, uh, is a very unusual take on a vampire story. So that is Ganja and Hess on Fandor. Okay, and your last option is one of the most critically acclaimed films of last year, as well as the 2010 winner of the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. It's Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives by Thai director Apichapong, where Seth Cool, Joe to his friends, and uh, ignorant Americans like myself, Allison... Uh, gave me the honor, I think, I would say, of, of synops- not only pronouncing his name, but synopsizing the movie, which is like asking me to synopsize w- a color. Synopsize orange. <laughs> Go. Uh, but it is, it's a fascinating film. This one we've both seen. It is hard to describe, though. The plot involves a dying man spending his last days doing – what isn't he doing? He's communing with ghosts and weird monkey men with glowing red eyes – but really, it's 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 not so much about the plot. It's about the the mood, the tone, the imagery, the ideas, the themes about life and death. It's a beautiful movie, and like I said, we've both seen it. But really, any excuse to revisit Uncle Boon Me is a good excuse, and it is now available to watch on Hulu Plus. So we're throwing it in there as option number three. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Friday, June 8th at noon. Whichever movie gets the most votes will be reviewed on the next episode of Film Spotting SVU. And coming up next on this episode of Film Spotting Original Recipe, I grow so angry about Allison's refusal to be with me forever that I boil her beloved pet rabbit. Sorry about that, Allison. It's <laughs> terrible. We have nothing but cruel intentions with our top five infidelity movies currently available on streaming. Stay with us. Had to go crazy to love you. Had to go down to the pit. Had to do time in the tower. Begging my crazy to quit. Had to go crazy to love you. You who were never the one. Whom I chased through the souvenir hardy. For braids and a blouse all undone. Sometimes I'd head for the highway I'm old and the mirrors don't lie But crazy has places to hide in That are deeper than any goodbye Had to go crazy to love you Had to let everything fall had to be people I hated. Had to be no one at all. Welcome back to Film Spotting. 
Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer filling in for Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson this week. And you were just listening to the featured musical artist this week, Leonard Cohen. He wrote the song, Take This Waltz, that inspired the title of Sarah Polly's movie. And the song itself does appear in the film, uh, though I'd say actually the main song is uh, Video Killed the Radio Star, unexpectedly. Yes, yes we should have <laughs> played that repeatedly throughout the episode. Why didn't we think of that? Well, who wouldn't want that? Um, Cohen's latest album, Old Ideas, came out in January. We should say also that Hallelujah, Hallelujah does not appear. Thankfully, it does not appear. And it's getting a rest, waltz. right? It's 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 being retired for a little Take bit. Take this hopefully. waltz may become perhaps may become the new Hallelujah, the new go-to song for films desperate to create a sense of spiritual resonance where there might otherwise not be. I one. would not complain. Okay, it's top five time on the show. This is our top five infidelity movies that are currently available on streaming. We don't do a top five on Film Spotting SVU, but we thought let's combine what we do on our show, which is sort of a rundown of what is available on streaming, with your traditional film spotting top five, which is how we came up with this. These are all great infidelity movies. And I think we came up with a really great five. We decided to do a joint list because it, it, there aren't a ton that are available. But I think we came up with a very, very strong list. This is, this is like a greatest hits. You're not going to go wrong with any of these movies if you want to see people either cheating on each other or wrestling with the great burden of cheating on one another. Allison, before we begin the countdown, is there anything we want to say about – infidelity movies in general or maybe putting take this waltz into a context with some of these movies well uh i did want to say that a lot of the obvious great choices in this category are you know in the pantheon so we did not mention that's true them. we should mention that right off the top the film spotting pantheon the list of the all-time great movies that they refuse to allow into top fives on film spotting because it would be too obvious it would be too easy they would appear over and over again on every episode there were two in the Pantheon that we wanted to use that were eliminated by their Pantheon status. That would be Billy Wilder's classic The Apartment and uh, Michael Curtiz's also classic Casablanca. Those are both very good movies about infidelity. So good, in fact, they have been barred from inclusion. So you won't be seeing those on our list. But we have a great list otherwise. Anything right. else we want to say about the movies we did well, pick? You know, it made me realize when we put together this list how – balanced take this waltz is in terms of uh not having either some dire consequence which is often the case uh with infidelity in films is that something goes terribly wrong because of it like there's punishment you waiting. mean like a, something like murder murder or just yeah that like it's very destructive and certainly in take this waltz hearts are broken mm -hmm. but it still is not the end of the world that, you know, it deals with the fact that sometimes you just you have a connection to someone mm. and and it it's not necessarily something you can control. Yes, there are many infidelity movies that are cautionary tales in the extreme, in the most in the boiling bunnies extreme. <laughs> and I think actually when you look at the ones we picked, you don't see too many of those. Actually, I think you see that that's kind of one poll and that, that, can, that can have its place. But we've picked ones that are a little bit more nuanced that actually do kind of fit more in the take this waltz mold, actually. I think that's a good point. One other thing that I didn't realize about take this waltz or didn't consider about it that I did after we went through the potential candidates for this top five was how much it, it did remind me in a weird way of a classic old kind of Victorian story of – longing and corsets and you know being betrothed to someone that society demands but having this insatiable pining for someone that you can never 
have just with more anthropology stuff on the walls of your apartment. That's interesting, uh, particularly since all of the restrictions are all self-created in Correct. this case. You know that in you the have case a character. Yeah, yeah, that you have a character who is. They're basically all nice. They are nice people, and that's part of the reason that that they're preserved in this. You know, basically love triangle for a long time is that. No one wants to go in and be the one who be the bad guy. Right. Yeah. It's a self-imposed prison of manners, which is kind of what a lot of those movies were. But in those cases, the manners were the manners of polite society. In this case, in 2011 Canada, apparently manners are not so polite and they could do whatever they want, but they choose not to for a long time because they're. And in fact, there's a point towards the end of, of Take This Waltz where one character actually says what's on her mind because of alcohol <laughs> and it talks about how refreshing it is to be able to say what's on your mind right which you know i think it speaks to what you're saying is that these are characters who despite not being in the Vic- victorian era are are not able to really speak up and say here's what i'm thinking they're in touch with their emotions but they can't express them i think is what we're saying all yes. right well let's move on to our top five again we have a joint list that we've agreed upon. We're going to go back and forth, bouncing back picks. Allison, I believe you're going to start with our number five pick. And that is Being John Malkovich, which is currently streaming on Netflix. And, you know, when you think about this film, you probably, you go to all of the strangeness, these great surreal touches first. The, you know, the portal in this office that leads to John Malkovich and that's into his head and then spits you out on the New Jersey Turnpike 15 minutes later. You have the seven and a half floor that, you know, inexplicably all of these people are working crouched down because the ceilings are low. You have, you know, there's so many like memorable moments like that, that it's sometimes easy to overlook. This is a film that's guided by infidelity. You know, uh, Charlie Kaufman's idea for the film originated as being about a story about a man who falls in love with someone who is not his wife, which is what happens in the film, along with plenty of other incredibly bizarre stuff, you know, and that John Cusack's character, Craig, brings Max uh, brings Catherine Keener's character Maxine into his discovery entirely because he wants to impress her that he wants an excuse to spend time with her despite the fact that she has like a blatant disinterest in him as a man as, as a human being hi do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work yeah um okay how about this if I can guess your name in three tries, you have to come have a drink with me tonight. Why not? Okay. You look like a... bar Maxine? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who told you? And, uh, you know, so they start their whole business of of allowing people to, uh, you know, visit the, the head of John Malkovich just so that he wants an excuse to be able to see her and to spend time with her outside of the office. It becomes, it seems silly at the beginning, uh, just because it's, it's, the setup is so ridiculous, but becomes kind of this sad thing about longing 
particularly when uh, in the latter half of the film, there is a sense that that Maxine is fine, just wants to be with the Malkovich puppet, basically, and whoever is inside, at least at first, it doesn't matter, right? Whether it's Craig or whether it's Lottie. She just likes the idea of of basically having, a, you know, I think they say like the, the most expensive suit. It's like wearing a really expensive suit <laughs> of this incredibly, you know, elaborate puppetry. But that it actually, you know, she comes around to believe that, no, it is the person inside who is important. Mm. So, you know, I, I think that as it may not be your traditional, the most traditional movie about cheating and infidelity and pursuing the person you really want to be with despite your current entanglements but it is, it, it is actually at its heart that's what one of the things it's about and i think it does it very memorably so that's being john malkovich and that's on netflix watch instantly all right our number four pick is also available on netflix watch instantly and it's from billy wilder we couldn't get the apartment on here but we were able to get the seven year itch from 1955 starring tom ewell and uh, some actress, I don't really, I don't know. She, I mean, you might have heard of her. What's her? Uh, Marilyn Mary, Mary something. Ma- Marilyn Mon- oh Marilyn Monroe, mm. something like that. Marilyn Monroe. Not even her character doesn't even need a name. That is how iconic and how Marilyn she was in this movie. She is just the girl, and it is a story of a man, a married man played by Tom Ewell, who sends away his family for their summer vacation but stays behind to keep working. And Marilyn Monroe, as the girl, moves into the building, into like an apartment upstairs or something, and that presents the at least the temptation to cheat. Whether or not he will actually go through with it, it presents the opportunity to consider and certainly to fantasize. That's a popular thing in infidelity movies as well, is the, is the fantasy of the married spouse imagining what it would be like the seven-year itch is of course the movie with marilyn standing over the sewer grate and having her skirt blown up perhaps the defining image of a generation of sexuality and maybe also sexual temptation you know the idea of for the forbidden fruit in some way didn't you just love the picture i did but i just felt so sorry for the creature at the end Sorry for the creature? Why'd you want him to marry the girl? He was kind of scary looking, but he wasn't really all bad. I think he just craved a little affection. You know, a sense of being loved and needed and wanted. That's a very interesting point of view. <laughs> oh, do you feel the breeze from the subway? Isn't it delicious? The apartment. The seven-year itch. It's a theme that pops up again and again in Billy Wilder's movies and obviously something that he liked to make movies about. I think because these infidelity movies really serve as a nice jumping-off point for stories of morality. What is the right way to behave? And we see characters taking different tacks. And what's funny is the the movies are all very different genres. You know, Dumble and Demney is such a dark film noir Seven Year Itch is kind of a very kind of fluffy comedy. It's light. It's very, very light. light. The apartment is almost so sad that you can't really call it a comedy, even though it has funny parts, you know. And it's almost like testing out how characters in different genres react to a similar set of circumstances, a similar set of temptations. What happens in a film noir when the chance for infidelity happens? What happens in a body sex comedy? What happens in a you know more serious drama? And you get to see over the course of his career how he 
refined his thoughts about the subject. And maybe The Seven-Year Itch, well, I definitely think The Seven-Year Itch isn't as good as The Apartment. It is still a really great movie, and it is a wonderful Marilyn Monroe performance, too. If you haven't seen a lot of actual Marilyn Monroe performances, you only know her as the image of her that's now become a ridiculous statue uh, of this particular shot of her with the, the skirt floating up. You should actually see the movie because it is kind of – it is a fun comedy. It is an interesting movie about infidelity, and it is called The Seven-Year Itch, and it is available on Netflix Instant. Our third pick is one of really the great films of all time. I think you know it deserves its reputation. It's The Rules of the Game uh, from Jean Renoir. And, you know, when this film was first shown to audiences, people were – it was it was considered kind of like this – demoralizing the satire was just too harsh in it which is funny when you watch it now it doesn't seem that scathing it's just like filled with this sense of that there are no consequences that these characters have essentially are 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 amoral and that you know it's set in a country estate in which everyone seems to be constantly involved in in like i planning to run off with someone else or in love with someone else or just kind of you know making arrangements uh to um to either return to the person they're married to or to uh have an extra marital fling and this includes the the main two people uh, the marquis and his wife christine in the beginning of the film both of their extramarital affairs are are they're trying to clean them up basically um the marquis has his mistress genevieve and christine has this thing with an aviator named Andre, uh, who is very public about his love for her and doesn't seem to understand quite how these things are supposed to be played. But, you know, they all come together for this weekend on the country estate. And uh, who brings their mistress to a, a weekend with their wife at the country estate? These people do. Uh, and amongst the servants, you have Lizette, who ha- is married but has a flirtation with the poacher Marceau. And that idea, the possibility of running away haunts the film and is also, you know, almost supposed to be proof of characters' humanity. And that if you really love someone, you'd be willing to leave your place in society and the the wealth that you have and, and run off with them. None of the characters ever seem to have real intentions of doing this. They like to play at it, but they are all involved in, in protecting themselves and their place. And, it, you know, it's one of the things that makes the tragedy that befalls one of the characters so moving and sad is the fact that it, they, there aren't going to be consequences for it. He is going to kind of be vanished or his fate, uh, the accident that, that befalls him, it's going to be written off as an accident and that, you know, to be emotionally involved with someone genuinely emotionally involved with someone in the context of this film is to really, to be a bit of a fool the lack of seriousness with which marriage is taken or the kind of the sense that it's a social and business arrangement rather than any kind of anything having anything to do with love it runs throughout this film and is a it's a little sad underneath it's a little it's a little it's a little hard to swallow but it's done so well and that is the rules of the game it's available on hulu plus okay also available on hulu plus is our number two pick that's belle du jour directed by louis Bunuel. From the year 1967 and starring Catherine Deneuve. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting portraits of infidelity because it's one of the least demonizing, you might say. Catherine Deneuve plays a character, this young French housewife who has this very cold relationship with her Seth Rogen. It's just uh, not working out. But 
she has all these fantasies, these wild, extravagant, kind of sadomasochistic, kind of weird, funky, pervy fantasies, depending on your point of view. And she has no way to express them, though. And then through a series of circumstances, ends up taking a part-time job at, as a prostitute in a brothel and finds fulfillment in the arms of these anonymous men that she hasn't found in years with her husband. I was talking about all those wilder movies as sort of plays about morality, and I don't know that that's necessarily true of Belle de Jour. It's more about fantasy and about the nature of fantasy. So that's Belle de Jour. It's available on Hulu. And it's our number two pick. And for our final pick, we're going to – you start, but we're going to throw this one out together. Yeah, all right. Well, our number one pick is Brokeback Mountain, which is streaming on Netflix and is a story in which you always know what the true love affair is. And it's the one that start like the characters start kind of with this love affair. And then all infidelities that happen uh, – kind of happen afterwards uh, – are in the context of the fact that you know that these characters kind of belong together. They get married, you know, they go off and look for fulfillment in other people, but always they're drawn back together. The army didn't get you? No, too busted up. <laughs> yeah, rodeo ain't what it was in my daddy's day. No. Got out while I could still walk. Mm. <sighs> Swear to God, I didn't know he was going to get into this again. I guess I did. I redlined it all the way. I couldn't get it fast enough. What about you? Me? I don't know. My broke back out is good, don't it? What are we going to do now? That's such an interesting take on infidelity in that Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal both go off and get married to characters played by uh, Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway, both of whom are treated like with uh, a fair amount of dignity as well. But that, uh, you know, the, that we're always aware of the fact that those aren't genuine relationships, right. that those are distractions, that those are, you know, almost in, in the sense of what happens at the end, that they're, they're time wasted. Right. It's almost like asking what is the, the real infidelity? Is it the technical one, which is these men being together again you know on the sly from their wives or is it their marriages which are shams to protect the fact that they're really gay it asks that very interesting question and it does kind of make for an interesting parallel double feature with take this waltz not just because michelle williams plays very different parts but in both movies but that idea that these two people can't be together for some reason you know this is the one of those society says reasons and watching at a very different time and place how how that happened. I feel like if if Ennis and Jack were cowboys in Toronto in 2011, the story would have a very different ending. But that's not when they lived. And so that's why you have this incredibly moving tragedy. Just one of the most heartbreaking movies you've ever seen. It is. And, you know, that speaks to also just the amazing sense of connection that the two actors are able to to provide on screen, which is, I think is like a, a rare thing to see in any movie. But, you know, I think that it does, in terms of the relationships, the marriages that they have, it does make them also seem sad because you have these women who don't understand why they will never be loved the way right. that they want to be loved. It's because, you know. You see the repercussions. Yes. In a way that 
are sad, but not, again, not extreme. So that was Brokeback Mountain, and it is available on Netflix Watch Instantly. Before we wrap things up, any honorable mentions that are also available on streaming that you want to mention, Allison? Yeah, I feel like you can't let this topic go without mentioning Adrian Lyon, who's kind of the king of uh, the the you will be punished for your infidelities movies but you know fatal attraction and unfaithful are both uh streaming fatal attractions on netflix and unfaithful is up for rent on itunes and then the graduate you know one of the great famous affairs in in films uh is on netflix and far from heaven another film about pining about longing and about being trapped within the, the structure of society is uh, also streaming on Netflix. Mm-hmm. The Coen brothers are another bunch of filmmakers who've made a lot of movies about infidelity. Not a ton of theirs are available for streaming, but The Man Who Wasn't There, one of their excellent noirs, is available. That's on both Netflix or Amazon, if you have uh, either of those. That's a great one with Billy Bob Thornton. Some amazing black and white cinematography and one of the best narrations you'll ever see in a very dark story about the dark side of infidelity. And also, I can't let an opportunity to mention an Arnold Schwarzenegger film (laughs) go unmentioned. So let me just point out that True Lies, uh, James Cameron's True Lies, is available on iTunes for rental. And that is a a fine film about infidelity as well, as uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character is concerned that perhaps his his wife is cheating on him with a used car salesman played wonderfully by Bill Paxton. And that creates this wonderful dynamic where he tries to reinvigorate his married life by bringing his his wife into his life as a secret agent. Wonderful, wonderful movie. One of the all-time greats as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. And those are our top five adultery movies currently available on streaming. Send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com. You can also visit us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And we also have individual accounts, twitter.com slash Singer and twitter.com slash Allison Wilmore. Opening in wide release this week, Snow White and the Huntsman and Piranha 3 D. And opening in limited release in Chicago, Wes Anderson's highly anticipated new film, Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, I Wish, which is this uh, really wonderful film from uh, Hirokazu Koreeda about two brothers who are separated by their parents' divorce. And stoner comedy High School. Okay, next week, Adam and Josh return for the Film Spotting 400th episode spectacular. They're recording the episode live. They'll be joined by special guests. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing show. And congrats to Josh and especially to Adam for four, 400 episodes that is amazing amazing and staggering congratulations guys i hope it's a great show thanks to leonard cohen for this week's music learn more at leonardcohen.com special thanks to tori malatia and shauna coin at wbez along with film spotting's producers golden joe Dassault and sam van halgren without sam and golden joe there would be no show for film spotting i'm matt singer and i'm allison wilmore thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye